Had enough of the been there, done that ideas, tired of too much talk and so little action. Rewind now and welcome to Transformation and Change Radio with Dr. Kathy O'Bear, where the vision of true equity, inclusion, courage, and purpose meet powerfully. Dr. Kathy delivers with dynamic, engaging conversation and the most authentically brave dialogue on air today. This hit show will challenge you to explore current issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion and deepen your capacity to choose courage to speak up to greater inclusion in everything you do. Fasten your seatbelts and accelerate your effectiveness to become a powerful change agent in your life, community, job, and society. Imagine true equity and inclusion and get the tools to really manifest your vision. No frills, no fluff, just really powerful, good stuff. Transformation and Change Radio starts now. Welcome. I'm Dr. Kathy O'Bear from Center for Transformation Change. I could not be more excited to welcome my two fabulous guests as we talk about insights from senior diversity officers, particularly about creating anti-racist, racial inclusive organizations that's about more than talk and really meaningful structural change. So I just want to welcome Dr. Becky Pettit. Whew. Vice Chancellor of Equity, Diversity, Inclusion at University of California, San Diego. I just remembered, I couldn't remember when we first met. I figured it was the Social Justice Training Institute way back in the 1990s. The very first one. So 1998. We should have a conversation about how I showed up as a white person because I think <laughs> I you would have feedback for me. I just know that that started a relationship that not only in all of your work at Texas A&M as Associate Vice President, Chief of Staff in the Office of Diversity, got to really appreciate the significant work that you and, was it Dr. Christine Stanley? Indeed it was. Uh, just the systemic change that, to be honest, as I got on your website, I'm like, whoo, similar and more. So if folks are listening and you wanna think about what needs to happen and how to do it, pop onto their website. But what I know is you worked for years with Texas A&M doing grassroots work, also doing some faculty work there. And then we did some consulting together. So I just wanna have people know that if they want, how do you do systemic structural change, meet people where they are, but make meaningful progress, you do that consulting for organizations as does your colleague, Dr. Diane Forbes Bethune, who I just started to meet, what, a month or two ago? Yes. What a Pleasure, yes, indeed. So excited to meet you, and as in your role as the Associate Vice Chancellor for Equity, Diversity, Inclusion, with partner with Beck, I just would love to be in y'all's meetings to, to really see the behind <laughs> the scenes, the strategizing, because um, I know what we can talk about when we're strategizing is very different than we can do, particularly in very in these times uh, publicly. And so, your work, also decades of work dismantling oppression, creating liberation work. What I was excited about as I get to know you is not only around institutional effectiveness, strategic planning, campus-wide initiatives, community engagement, all that work that your partner with Becky be doing, but also you've got work in nonprofit and government. I have to say, I grew up in Prince George's County. So when I saw your work in Montgomery oh. County, yes, yes, um, we could have used it, I could have used it <laughs> decades ago and. Prince George's County was actively racist in even more ways than yeah. I think it might be now. So I decided to see that, but also your work as faculty, associate professor, and then chair 
of Communications Trinity. So you all bring vast similar and different experiences and I cannot thank you enough. Oh, one more thing about Diane. You have some background at Howard. And H-U. so I have to say, <laughs> I know what's going on in Georgia right now and has been for years. Yes, yes. Um, Proud HBCU grad and um, people of color and black people are showing what leadership really means throughout our states and our institutions. We're proud. Woo. And if I may, particularly black women in Georgia and at UCSD and other places. Indeed. Right on, right on. So I'm gonna trust this is gonna be an engaging dialogue as we look at this anti-racist racism initiative. But first I want folks to get to know you a bit more. Could each of you just talk a bit about yourself? You're starting a new semester, 11 months of the pandemic with a vastly disproportionate devastation for black, brown, indigenous folk, renewed demands for racial justice. And we've all been around a long time to see renewed, especially on our campuses, but this time does feel different to me and it might be I'm in my white naivete. So who are you and how are you doing in this time of these, I don't know about you, challenging contexts we're in? So. Yeah, thank you, Kathy, for this opportunity. And I want to thank you for your <clears throat> for your leadership and your longstanding commitment um, to this anti-racist work. So thank you for your partnership. Um, I, I've been doing this work for so long, for longer than this has really been a professionalized area. I grew up with my mother. Um, <clears throat> as an activist. I don't know that she would have called herself an activist, but she was an early role model for what it meant to make room, what it meant to create equity and opportunity for those who might be marginalized, minoritized, um, and, and not at the table. Um, and doing this work at this time, I think is a gift. I, I think if I were in any other profession right now, I would um, be wandering and wondering how I could be useful. But right now I get paid to do this. And so waking up every day with the goal of creating a better tomorrow, a more equitable tomorrow, it um, is both daunting and encouraging and doing this work during an active pandemic has been uh, challenging, right? So thinking about um, thinking about just uh, how COVID has laid bare the inequality, how um, it's really given us uh, an opportunity also, right? So I, I think about the, the challenge of the last year and identify what I will call, um, for lack of a better word, the a collateral beauty, the collateral opportunities that we've been given to uh, point out um, the, the inequality and to be able to challenge it head on, but also to see the courage and the beauty in individuals and really giving, giving um, major uh, props to our young people who are guiding us, who are leading us, who are literally in the streets using their bodies, blocking traffic, stopping traffic, um, calling attention to this work. So I, I'm gonna stop being long-winded, but I, I want to say it is, it's, 
uh, right now doing this work is challenging, it's encouraging, and, um, you know, I, I woke up with Georgia on my mind, right? So, so there's, there's endless possibility, and we need not uh, underestimate our potential to transform and create the world we want. I may break into song singing about Georgia. <laughs> and as a white person, as I hear you, I feel more energized and focused and committed. And I can easily slip into despair and frustration. And I think that's one of the traps of white people. So as we start particularly talking about the role of whites in this work, folks of color, particularly black folk, black women, long haul. And even in that moment, I noticed the wisdom that I have the here of, we. And we have to hold on to the vision, the future, and all the possibilities. So Diane, please come in. Who are you and how are you doing? Sure. Good morning, Kathy and team. And first time I'm seeing my boss, Dr. Becky Pettit, since <laughs> the New Year's. Happy New Year to her <laughs> and to you Year. and to everyone. Such a privilege and an honor to be here. Um, you know, when you hear people going in 1962, but you know, Becky brought up her parents. And of course, um, for me, that's my family is really important to me. So who am I? I come to this work as an immigrant. I was born and raised in Jamaica and then came here for um, tertiary education. And uh, my father was an entrepreneur and worked in the worst parts of the city for more than 35 years and had an opportunity to be elsewhere, but chose to be there to employ um, poor and those who were underserved. And my mother, same. She was a teacher for 30 plus years in the worst part of the major city of um, the country. But what I remembered is going to those communities and having relatives who lived there and never having a sense that they were really different from who we were. And another memory, which at some point, if I write some autobiography, I might say that in the 1970s, when my sister and I were young, my mother was involved with one of the political parties. And there was a women's arm called the WFM, the Women's Freedom Movement. And so this was an offshoot of what was happening in the United States and what was happening globally with women's rights. And my sister Denise and I, almost every Tuesday and Thursday, my mom reminded us of this. She's like, sometimes it was three days a week. After school in our school uniforms, we'd be sitting on the stoop. And what I remember most is some woman at the podium and hundreds of women doing some kinds of chants and call outs and callbacks. And I was like, who are these people? Little did I know I would then go to a girl's school for seven years. I would end up studying in my research at Howard University, Black Women's Executive Leadership. I had all sisters and this really powerful and amazing mom and dad who at dinner tables and you know in our life, were always talking about what could we do to change the world. And having sisters going to a girl's school, and I felt like I was a part of the WFM, the Women's Freedom Movement, that helped to shape my thinking around social justice, as well as not growing up in poor communities, but having parents who worked in those communities. And you know, you go to your parents' offices all the time. That shaped who I was and, and what I thought we could do. No surprise, I went into education as my mom because I thought that education was a path to liberation. Mm -hmm. And so um, in brief, that is how I you know, went through undergrad and then ended up studying social psychology and communication at Howard University, which is where I felt that I grew up intellectually. And so that has informed a lot of my own um, scholarship practice. And the immigrant component helps me to bring that global piece. I've worked in Jamaica, I've worked in South Africa, and I'm continuing to work around race-related issues globally and um, in, in this country. And so I continue to work. And the work that I'm doing at UC San Diego, pleased to be working with VCEDI, um, with 
Dr. Pettit, and the whole team. There uh, were this brilliant, innovative team thinking now about what can we do to change the world? And we're doing that in our enclave of um, UC San Diego. And so it's been a privilege and it's an exciting time, the best of times and the worst of times, as some people have said. And so we're, we're doing our bit to make it better. My guess is listeners are looking at their own growing up and comparing and white listeners, I bet you might be a little more related to me. 1968, I remember driving, my mom driving through Washington DC after Dr. King's assassination, Resurrection City. And my mom saying, lock your doors as we saw the National Guard. And I felt fear because I had those racist stereotypes and I didn't understand as people were calling it rioting as opposed to revolution and reaction to assassination and centuries of white supremacist racial oppression, trauma. So many of our white listeners may be going, both of you and so many folks of color, indigenous folks started very young recognizing racism individually, systemically and getting very active early. So as we bring it to UCSD, your website has so many great resources. Again, go folks. Um, and is you know dedicated to cultivating community with hearts, your principles of community really speaking clearly. And not that long ago, a couple decades ago, as a woman, as a lesbian, if I'd read that, I'd been like, great, a place I can belong. And I would have overlooked the focus on racism. So that's A, but B. How do we, how are you all putting an emphasis on anti-racism as so much of the website, your strategic plan talks about full breadth of differences and place of belonging and a place to strive? Yes, thank you for that question. Um, I think uh, the most important work um, that we have done so far uh, is create our strategic plan because it, it creates the infrastructure that will sustain the work, right? So we recently um, being led and, and informed by uh, Dr. Eddie Moore's work, uh, we implemented a 21 day anti-racism challenge. And that was um, a really great opportunity for us to uh, read uh, current uh, literature, to watch videos, to read poetry, to be informed about the roots of racism and to learn about how we can become actively anti-racist. But that was an initiative, right? So our work is doing more than having one um, uh, sort of these episodic uh, in engagement opportunities, but to lay the groundwork for strategy and building infrastructure that will outlive the two of us. Mm -hmm. uh, and Diane played a, a key leadership role in helping to, uh, to ground our strategic plan. So we are doing both and. We are doing the education around uh, like a 21 day challenge, bringing in speakers. We are planning a white uh, ally initiative uh, with your partnership. And at the same time, our strategic plan calls upon every unit leader to uh, be mindful about and and be actively engaged in improving the climate for equity, diversity, and inclusion within their own units. 
And in our next uh, iteration of our accountability meetings, we are asking that they focus on, um, that, that they center on the needs of the black community at this time. So at, at, at different points in time down the line, we will focus on uh, other groups, our indigenous community, uh, our LGBT community and so forth. At this time, we are saying, how are you College of Engineering? How are you Division of Student Affairs? How are you thinking about and structuring and um, creating better opportunities for our Black community, our Black faculty, staff, and students. And we're asking them to think about outreach to Black uh, community, uh, onboarding of the Black community, integration of the Black community, engagement of the Black community, promotion of the Black community. So really thinking through all of our processes, our procedures, the way we do business and, and getting really specific about how we um, meet the needs of a particular population. So it, it's important that we look at the whole, the whole campus and to uh, zoom in on the specificity of the needs of one particular population, right? Not to the exclusion of others because we will um, focus on other groups at different points in time but, but this is a really important initiative. Um, so I, I, I'll let Diane um, touch on that as well. Sure. Um, so a few things that we've continued to work on and the themes that you've heard uh, Becky talk about are related to capacity building and leadership development. And what we find in this moment of crisis is many persons have come to our office you know, online uh, saying, what can we do? either someone at the mid-level or at the senior executive levels. And what we found is the work we've been doing all along is what we continue to do, which is meeting, having those dialogues, reading, asking critical questions, and making suggestions to them for organizational change. So one of the things that we've done to extend the strategic planning process is not just to establish the plan, put it online, and present it at some fancy meeting, all of which we did, by the way. But we also, because that's how we work, uh, we've been thorough and comprehensive in that approach. It's also then meeting with unit leaders to talk about how they then implement or execute focusing on access and success, climate and accountability, which are the three core tenets of our inclusive excellence plan. And walking them through climate indicators, walking them through the data, looking at recruitment. So when Becky talks about the specificity of that, thinking about recruitment and retention, what is the experience of BIPOC folks? What's the experience of first-generation students or first-generation faculty? And looking at climate uh, and retention data, leadership succession and professional development data, looking at all of those things over a period of time. We have an amazing office um, for institutional research, and we also have an office called OSI, Operational Strategic Initiatives, and they really help us uh, build those instruments and then track the trends over time. This is in the last few years, the first time that institutionally unit leaders and um, units at large have been um, examining who they are, the state of EDI and the future of EDI in their area. So uh, really helping people to make sense of their organizations and then move forward from that point. The listeners are way excited, probably overwhelmed, but I want to say again on your website, your toolkit was fabulous and it shows how you work a unit through to then have those accountability structures. You have a timeline on there. So the transparency and the generosity of sharing 
resources that have been developed over the years. Um, we, I wanna thank you for all those other folks, particularly in higher ed, but other organizations and even smaller organizations that are like, how do we have those resources? Well, you may not have all these different departments and divisions, but you have a lot of templates as well as there are some other places to look at. I'm really struck by the construct, sorry, the context of years of significant organizational change work, developing capacity, leadership accountability, so that, tell me where I'm wrong, you have more and more internal capacity. So particularly whites can hear a focus on dismantling racism, anti-racism and the role of white allies and change agents and say yes, instead of the waves of a resistance, which many campuses and other organizations are getting. So could you talk a bit more why now this focus on white allyship, what you mean by it, um, and what are some of the specifics? And we have, you know, five or six minutes before we'll probably go to break. And then we'll come back to more of it. Right. So um, in, in response to why now, my answer is why not now? And it's long overdue, right? Uh, we, we really need white allies in this work. As I, as I think about uh, the, the transformation we are undergoing right now in America and the Herculean work that women of color uh, have done uh, that we are doing. I think about Stacey Abrams and her uh, uh, long game, so to speak, right? So it, it, Georgia didn't flip on a dime overnight. That was a strategic thoughtful work over time. And that's what we're doing here at UC San Diego. And it's important that we partner with our white colleagues and that we identify and engage white allies and other, other white people of goodwill. Um, there is, you know, in, in higher education as, as in many other uh, milieus, um, webs of resistance, pockets of resistance, and our approach is to really engage that, to notice it, to name it, and to call people in rather than calling people out, hold people accountable. Uh, and what's really important in higher education is using data. Narrative is important, telling people stories uh, it is important, uh, and we pair that with data to say, here's where we've been, how, how can we help you, support you, coach you, partner with you to do better? And, you know, ultimately our goal is to change hearts and minds. And at the same time, we are uh, wanting to create structures that will compel people to, um, to get on board, uh, incentives and uh, public accountability. So yeah, we, we need uh, white folks in this work, white folks to be uh, more educated uh, and not always looking to people of color to do the educating and for our white allies to really identify actions, right? So it's not enough to read all, read all the books, to be well-read on the most current stuff, uh, but what are you gonna do with that knowledge? How is it going to inform and impact the decision you make tomorrow? and the next day. So I'll let Diane uh, respond as well. 
Absolutely. So, you know, why now? I would say our humanity depends on it. You know, I come to this work as a parent and two teenagers who have been very active in some of the change that we're discussing. But in terms of the administrative role, you know, I, I heard about, I was reading recently this metaphor of, you know, if you're in the mud keeping another individual in the mud or keeping them down, so to speak, or oppressing, we're all in the mud. And so the work of anti-racism is to move out of that mire of people feeling like they have no dignity, no respect, not just feeling like, but being treated with disrespect. And if you think linguistically, bringing my uh, communication and linguistic background here as well, respect from the Latin word, the re is look again and spec, specta, spector is to look at. And what we're asking and asking all of us to think about in terms of our common humanity is to look again at that common humanity. In this case, we've created collectively um, this construct of race, which continues to dehumanize, continues to mistreat and disrespect uh, black people and many peoples of color. And in the work that we're doing in the institution, we're hoping to move people from the individual to the structural, or at least think about the systemic as well. You'll hear people say, but I'm not a racist, um, or my family didn't own any um, slaves. You'll hear that kind of language, or, uh, you know, I've worked hard for what I have, and, and all kinds of things that we've heard over the years in our work. We're hoping that that resistance may be revisited. So the, the looking again at uh, what we've been saying and doing and then think about a collective change moving forward. It's not just the work of any one racial or gender or any other group. And so when I think about it, I think about our collective humanity, our common humanity and um, the ways in which every institution, religious, community, higher education, tech, tech industries, corporate industries are affected by this. You see what Google is going through and so many other institutions grappling with what racism looks like and how we then tackle and address it. All those racist behaviors and resistance, white fragility of whites, I have said and done. And I know at the group level, whites are far less competent to partner with folks of color, indigenous folks. So as we come back from break, I'd love to get even more specific of some of those tools and skills, self-work that whites particularly need to be doing in this white ally work. But before we go to break, could each of you say how folks can find you not only the systemic level, but also if you are doing, I can't imagine with all the time you have, but if you are doing consulting, how they can find you uh, to have a conversation about how you could be useful for their organizations. Sure, absolutely. Uh, diversity at ucsd.edu. We respond to all uh, inquiries and as you noted, uh, Kathy, we are very generous with our information. This is such hard work and we don't want to have people spend time reinventing the wheel if we can share information. And often when folks reach out to us uh, for consultation and, and information, it ends up being a mutual, uh, a mutual exchange because everybody's doing uh, something really important at this time. So yes, feel free to reach out to us. I realized that we didn't mention our website. So it's diversity.ucsd, quite similar to our email, uh, .edu, diversity.ucsd.edu. Our accountability information is there, strategic planning, anti-racist resources, and so on. I am just so excited to continue learning with you. Insights of senior diversity officers, doctors Becky Pettit, Diane Forbes, 
pursued University, California, San Diego. I can't wait to come back and keep digging deeper. We'll be back in just a few moments. Message delivery by Lisa Ann. You can't make this stuff up. Tune in every first and third Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Message Delivery is an inspirational show about the journey to enlightenment and spirituality. For more information or your own personal message delivery, visit AngelMessages2U.com. That's AngelMessages, the number two, the letter U, dot com. Transition, simultaneously the most difficult and vital part of the human experience. Without change, how would we grow? Tune in to Grounding Into Your Radiance with Stacy Barber every second and fourth Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Step into your truth and allow the light into your life. For more information about Stacy and her services, visit StacyBarber.com. That's Stacy S-T-A-C-I-E, Barber.com. It's time to get your life back on Burn Bright Today with Jennifer Marcinelli. Tune in each month on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Learn to move from the darkness of burning out to the light of burning bright. Jennifer is redefining stress and the energetic causes of burnout, shining a light on process to get your life back. For more information about Jennifer and her work, visit BurnBrightToday.com. Tune in to The Truth is Funny with Colette Steffen each Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on TransformationTalkRadio.com. This hit show will have you thinking outside the box and riding the wave of infinite potential. Join Colette on the Higher Self Network, inspiring listeners to shine their brilliance and ensure success while roaring with laughter as they recognize the humor of the giant cosmic joke. Visit TheTruthIsFunny.com. Raising the vibrations through stimulating conversations while exploring the mysteries of Atlantis and Lemuria on Tales from the Mer World Radio with me, Amira Beth. Join us every second and fourth Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Be ready to feel empowered and an active part of the changing earth. For more information about me, visit Amerabeth.com. The Truth is Funny, Shift Happens with Colette Marie Steffen is excited to welcome Karen Benton as a monthly guest host. Tune in on the third Wednesday of each month at 8 a.m. Pacific time to regain confidence and trust in your capacity to create change in your life, your health, your family, and your well-being. Karen Benton is a mother, nurse practitioner, certified body talk practitioner, Franklin Method instructor, and owner of Limitless Living LLC. For more information about Karen, visit karenbenton.com. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Kathy Abair, joined by Vice Chancellor and Associate Vice Chancellor, Vice Chancellor Becky Pettit, Associate Vice Chancellor Diane Forbes, Bethude, University of California, San Diego. Great conversations about their anti-racism organizational change efforts that they're building on top of years of systemic change work around equity, inclusion, diversity. Thank you all so much. We ended the first half beginning to talk about what is a white ally. And I appreciated Becky really talked about knowledge is critical. And Diane, you added self-awareness is critical. Some of those racist attitudes and behaviors, white fragility, defensiveness. What are some of the critical 
behaviors, capacities that you need, we need from white leaders, managers, faculty, supervisors. And if you wanna enter it from what gives you pause from other institutions, what you still see whites doing, especially, you know, especially at the decision-making leadership level. So what do we need white change agents, white accomplices doing? Um, I think it is really important um, for white uh, allies, white individuals to reflect on their own unprocessed trauma. As I think about what's happening right now in DC and the resurgence, um, the, uh, the very public displays of white uh, supremacy, uh, like modern day Klan rallies, but they have on uh, ball caps and carry tiki torches. Um, I, I find myself uh, both afraid, enraged, but also feeling some compassion for the pain and fear that must be animating and, and motivating that, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I want white folks to get introspective and think about how, how white supremacy and the lie of that has done damage to us all. So being real honest with ourselves that doing that kind of deep um, exploration and pursuing their own healing. So trying to come to this work as though they are doing uh, people of color a favor is really the wrong way to enter this. It is about our shared humanity and our collective liberation. And I, I want people to do more than be well-read. I want them to, once they deal with their own pain, their own um, unprocessed trauma, come to this work with some clarity with our shared humanity in mind and put something on the line. Uh, Dr. Bettina Love talked about the concept of, of white privilege being like a debit card that, you know, if you if you spend some money, if you cash out, so to speak, your debit card is going to get replenished tomorrow. So use your white privilege in the service of creating a better world and our shared liberation every day. Right. So it doesn't it's not OK to be courageous today. And, oh, I spoke out in that faculty meeting and whew, now, now I'm good. You got to do that every day. It's a conscious choice every single day in many aspects of and I'm going to talk about, you know, in, in higher education, in many aspects of, of how you show up and how you do your work. My fear is that some whites hearing you are like, yay, and they go into that white savior mode, which I have done and could still fall into that trap of, I know a lot, I'm angry, and let me just go at white folks. Because that trauma uh, that I have, believing whites are superior, being told that my way is the best way, um, I relate to the folks that might be marching today that have clearly been protesting and showing up in violence in Salem, Oregon, and other places. So I just want to caution any white people listening, if you're Distancing yourself from those that Becky's talking about, how are you just like the whites today in DC who are uh, in front of that podium right now? Um, and that's our deep work. How do we have racist attitudes, white supremacist beliefs? How are we perpetuating white dominant white supremacy culture and coming in as the good white 
to save people of color. And Diane, I know you have lots of thoughts on this too. Sure, well, you know, from a communication and also a psychosocial perspective, it is so important, especially at a time like this, to, to listen and act with intentionality and compassion. We are talking about ourselves, meaning who we are as a whole. And, and when I hear some of the defensive comments or people going, well, that's not about me, it says to me that there's something about the other, which is really ourselves, that we're unable to see. You know, so so I would like the C words are coming to me here, but I would really um, encourage more curiosity as well as courage. You know, the, the silence to me in meetings, the silence in society, the silence with how our democracy is being treated right now. I know people are speaking out, but I'm just thinking of the government right now and those who are supporting different groups. The silence around the, the pain people have experienced and the trauma collectively that we've experienced as a society globally around race continues to, to kill us, right? And so when you ask us about the specific actions and the kinds of things that our white friends and colleagues can do to show up differently and to dismantle white supremacy, it is around the courage to break the silence when that hire is going to be made or not when that person walks on campus and there's a comment or a thought and you, I are in the room and we don't do anything to challenge that. And in this case, what we want our white accomplices and allies and colleagues and friends to do is to say, wait a minute. And that's the courage to then move forward, to, to interrogate the question, to reframe it, to ask important questions, and then to act if that person has that institutional or positional power to change that dynamic and to continue to do as we've been saying um, daily and sometimes hourly and people say oh but that's so much work and i'm so tired and i want to say do you know what we've been going through and do you know what uh, my teenagers have to do and have had to do since about six seven eight going to the mm -hmm. principal's office and mm -hmm. speaking up about an issue that's unjust or challenging the administration in middle school and in high school and i've said the number of times i've been in the principal's office for the, for the reasons in and around justice or on the phone with with various administrators and people go oh, that's your daughter and i'm thinking the society in part has not allowed our youth to be fully who they are, as in black youth, to be fully who they are, innocent, uh, curious, fun-loving, and all these other things fully. And that is really um, a function of our white supremacist society. So when I think about those things, as I said, I come to the role as an institutional leader and administrator, but also as a parent with that investment mm -hmm. that the world we are collectively creating of all ages and orientations and nationalities and everything else is the one that I want my 18 and 14 and a half year old to be in fully with integrity and with courage. And some of the examples they're seeing are have left us wanting. So, you know, I, I want to emphasize courage and compassion more than anything else and to grapple with what loss really means because the speaking up means you lose something with your social group or with your racial group. And if you lose something, we all lose something. So I really am connected to the collective in, in our discussion and want to emphasize that as well. Mm. So to really have why to recognize current day and historically, what does racism and white supremacy look like and the loss and trauma and violence of folks of color and indigenous. Passion and curiosity and commitment to speak up at that interpersonal microaggressions, not just the blatant racist N word calling. 
where I find, and I'm seeing more and more in Weiss with passion, speaking up, wanting those skills, what can I do, where I find your work particularly exciting is at the systemic level. Because I find many white leaders are like, I helped create these policies. I take it personally when you challenge how we do hiring or how we do onboarding or how we do budgeting. What do you mean I have to change how I teach in my classroom, right? I marched with Dr. King. So what are ways systemically that you are helping leaders become aware? And I'd like to, A would be, what are some of the really common ways that racist attitudes consciously or unconsciously have gotten embedded into policies, practices, unwritten norms, how we teach, what we teach. So A, what are some of those and how do you help whites recognize the systemic areas that need changing? And then B, when we come back, it'll be what are some of the ways you are preparing white leaders and white managers and faculty to change systemically? So what are some of those just glaring or actually very subtle systemic embedded racism that you know exist higher ed and other institutions? Diane, do you wanna go first? Sure, happy to. Uh, uh, even though our office doesn't just work with faculty, as, as former faculty myself and some of the examples that we thought about before, speaking of systemic, I think about um, pedagogy and being inclusive in both the readings, the speakers, the names of the classes, the courses we create. And so if a student, for example, although this is at individual level, our system of educational is institutional and structural, if they never see a course that is about them, right, their ethnic, cultural, or international group, or whatever it is, there is an implicit statement made there that you're not welcome here. And so the courses we create, the faculty we hire, the, the research we conduct, the grants for which we apply, and the persons um, with whom we choose to collaborate, uh, lots of research that women and faculty of color and black faculty are often excluded from the informal and formal networks for that NSF, NIH, NEA grant, or whatever it is, and that continues to perpetuate itself. And then the, the emotional labor that might be there for faculty. Another thing is um, the importance of data. And so institutionally, what we've done, not only for the entire campus, uh, in terms of uh, mostly faculty and students, we've continued to build on staff, is tracking you know, who has access to the institution and then who's hired finally. So this is a systemic change that we're helping leaders to say, okay, well, who was in that pool? 50, and then it came down to one. And if the hires are always the same, let's say white woman, white woman, white male, white male, or whatever it is, and we hardly ever see indigenous, black, or any other person of color, veterans, and others, we then need to think structurally about what we are creating. And so those are some things pointing to pedagogy and some HR and staff related and analytical related tools that we can both create and then use effectively for organizational or institutional change. Keep going, Becky, great stuff. I, I will add that one of the things I'm famous or, or infamous, if you will, for saying is that if nothing changes, nothing changes, right? So if we keep doing the same things we have always done, if we don't pay attention to the structure that is in place, that is creating these uneven outcomes, then we'll continue to have more of the same. And it's not okay to hire a senior diversity officer or you know, stand up an office like ours 
and expect us to not be change agents. So we are coming to, to, your, to a department near you. We are coming to an organization near you to say, what needs to change in this organization to help create more equitable outcomes? So since Diane talked about the curriculum, I'll talk about faculty hiring, for example, and how we have built structures so that we are more attentive to the process and the outcome. So before any faculty search uh, can commence, we have a training on best practices in faculty hiring. An important component of that is implicit bias uh, education. Uh, having people be thoughtful and mindful of how to manage biases throughout the process from the construction of the committee itself. Is the committee diverse? Is it representative? to the questions that we ask, to the way we build the job description, to like, are we saying we want new faculty who have knowledge, skills, competencies, experience, working with diverse populations. Um, no faculty file at UC San Diego is complete without a contribution to diversity statement. So you have to tell us, here's how you have, or here's how you will, contribute to our commitment to equity, diversity, and inclusion at UC San Diego. That is part of the application, right? So then, then moving forward throughout the process, we have faculty equity advisors who are partners who watch every aspect of the search from knowing what the, the pool is for this particular job, who is um, in our applicant pool, who makes our long list, who makes our short list, who's been invited to campus, and then finally, who's been selected. So we have all of that automated. We have this infrastructure where our faculty equity advisors are monitoring that. I have access to that as well, all right? So at any point in the search, if we see, you know, that, that, that the, the applicant pool is not diverse enough, we can pause for a conversation, right? Um, so it, it's not waiting until we get to the end of the year, to the end of that hiring season to say, what happened here? We are partnering with them along the way. And this is an example of an infrastructure that we uh, have created as a tool to uh, pursue our shared goals. And at the end of every hiring season, I, along with our, our chief academic officer, visit with all of the deans and department chairs to reflect on the last hiring season. Here's the goals you are, the, here are the goals you articulated, here are your outcomes, here are the gaps. How do we make sure we address that next time around? So people actually have to answer for what they have done the, the uh, cycle before, and then we do that again, right? So, so, it, so it's an, an ongoing uh, undertaking that that we have now gotten in the rhythm of. And my guess is it's similar for some staff positions, leadership positions, as well as senior leader, and a commitment to representation and demonstrated competence is what I wanna make sure everybody hears and the accountability. Could we just have about eight or so minutes? Could you say a bit more about the accountability structures in general for anti-racism work? Um, that's again, very, transparent on your website and um, actually let's just do that and then I have several more questions I'd love to get in 
Okay, I'll answer briefly and then give Diane time to respond as well. It, it, the accountability starts with, um, since we're talking about em employees and leadership, it starts with it being in your job description. So uh, staying with the faculty example in our Dean's uh, job description and in their uh, performance evaluation, there is a component about equity, diversity and inclusion. So we create the infrastructure to then at whatever cycle folks are hired or evaluated, we continue to return to this. This is part of your job. How are you performing this? And then, uh, as I mentioned before, we have annual accountability meetings and um, because of the pandemic at this point, we've only had one, we're gonna have another one where unit leaders have to talk about the state of equity, diversity, and inclusion within their uh, within their unit. They have to talk about faculty, staff, and students. They have to talk about, as Diane uh, talked about our tenants, um, a, a climate, um, presence, and success, and so forth. So it's really capacious. And what's important is that you build in accountability in as many aspects of university operations as possible. Um, so, so that you have those touch points that you can return to, such as the annual evaluations. So Diane, I'll let you respond. Sure, Becky did a great job describing the process. What I think is important in how we have executed it is similar to a budget process where you say, here's what I've been given and here's what I've done with those resources and here's what I'll need in the future. We had accountability meetings and um, after reports were written by our institutional leaders, our EDI advisory council made up of faculty, staff and student leaders uh, spent time reviewing those reports and offering ratings of sorts along access, success, climate and accountability. And there were proceedings over two days, a day and a half, all 17 uh, vice chancellors and deans providing a presentation on the state of EDI in their unit how they did over the last year, what they had the future strategies for uh, the coming year or years. And I think formalizing that as well as having our chancellor, executive vice chancellor and vice chancellor for equity, diversity and inclusion with the council present and some members of our EDI team signal to the campus that this is not something that's frivolous and it's certainly not something that we think is um, just a one-time goal when it's not a, a performative element. It is something that's baked into our structure and our institutional priorities. So that was really important. I've not worked at an institution where that's been the case. So I, I wanted to mention that as well. So I, may, may I add before we leave that it is so important to have strong and committed university leader partners. So our chancellor is a true champion. Our executive vice chancellor is a true champion and we could not be successful if they were not also fully on board. Absolutely. And together you all and maybe building on before significant structural change. And this is some of the most detailed accountability structures I've heard. Public sharing, so there's cross sharing but also folks don't want to be the one with the lowest rating or even mediocre ratings. And my guess is behind closed doors, there are other conversations that happen around where I need you to be if you want to be here. Bree, just in a couple moments, and I could have you all back several times, but you were so busy. I was really struck in your principles of community. I loved how you talked about 
what you believe, but also the right to freedom of expression with respect and sensitivity, highest standards of civility and decency, free of abuse, demeaning treatment. So many people, especially this, literally this day are racist white supremacist comments. And as you all know, as you do more anti-racism work, more whites particularly, and maybe some BIPOC folk are gonna say very offensive, demeaning things. Can you just say more about that dilemma of free speech and principles of community? Yeah, uh, the, in, in, in higher education, the marketplace of, of ideas, um, we have an obligation to allow ideas to emerge, even those uh, with which we disagree. And we also have a, 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 an obligation to uh, create and maintain healthy places to learn and to work. And um, I call it an, an occupational, uh, occupational hazard, if you will, is that in this line of work, I expect uh, the best of people to show up. I also expect the worst of, of people for, for us to not all um, show up uh, as our best selves. And when that happens, how do we use those moments to teach? How do we use those moments to learn and grow and to educate? Because I, I think it is, it is bound to happen. People are going to have thoughts we disagree with. They are going to say offensive things. They're going to say outlandish, racist things. We, we are a microcosm of society. For me, the mark of a progressive and committed institution is how we engage in those moments, how we deal with those moments, how, how we use those moments to teach and grow and um, uh, encourage people to, to show their better selves and, and to also hold those individuals accountable when they are um, behaving in ways that are counter to our principles of community. Diana, I just have about a minute. If you oh, you could, go ahead, Kathy, because I know no, if you could share and then let us know how we people can find you all and then I'll have a final comment. Well, our principles are aspirational and uh, we depend on our community to think about our better selves and advancing our humanity in education. How you can find us, diversity at ucsd.edu. And we'd be happy to continue the conversation. I am so inspired and learned so much that I'm going to pass on. Thank you so much, Dr. Becky Pettit, Dr. Diane Forbes, Bethune, University of California, San Diego. Whew, I love you both. Join me next month with Dr. Candace Nicole Hargis. We're going to talk about healing racial trauma, her work at University of Kentucky, as well as in her Center for Racial Trauma Healing. I am so blessed to be learning from such deeply committed change agents. I wish you all the best in these times. Thank you so much. Thank you. Kathy. Thank you, Kathy. It was our pleasure. You've been listening to Dr. Kathy O'Bear on Transformation Talk Radio. Thanks for tuning in and be sure to catch us next time as Kathy inspires listeners to become agents of change, motivate, innovate, and speak truth to power. Step into the courageous you that will change the world. Connect to life-changing conversations to extend your reach. For more information on Kathy and her work, please visit drkathyobear.com. That's drkathyobear.com.